Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Wrapping up the week here in Canton, and it was last night, Mark Davis enjoying a chicken wing while watching his Raiders take down the Jacksonville Jaguars. Mark, don't talk with your mouth full. Oh, that's a continuous loop. But he's still talking with his mouth full. Come on, Mark. Reminded me of a time when, at a Bills game in Toronto, the late Rob Ford enjoying a little chicken wing. Rob Ford, kind of a cross between Chris Farley and Mark Davis, really. Rest in peace, Rob Ford. Nothing wrong with going to a game and enjoying some chicken wings, especially when you own a football team and the Raiders won, so celebrate that. Celebrate the return of Miles Simmons on a Friday because Chris Sims already is gone. I allowed myself to think for a day or two this week that maybe he would be here with me on Friday. That's not the case. He has cleared out. He is gone. He is taunting me that he's taking the day off. He always takes Friday off, so it's no different than any other Friday. Miles, welcome in. We are officially another Friday closer to death, so we have that going for us. Appreciate you getting up extra early in Los Angeles. I am very close to your hometown of Cleveland. You are. The weather here, far, far less predictable than it is in, in your neck of the woods, which made for mm-hmm. an interesting Thursday night. Yeah, it sure did. I mean, like, I... When I see things like that, it just makes me really happy that I live out here where, you know, the weather is very predictable. I I think when I I was in Kansas City a few weeks ago to visit a couple friends and right when we landed, there were like some lightning strikes in the distance. I'm like, man, I am not used to that anymore. And I don't like it. I don't like lightning. I don't like thunder. It gave me away from the rainstorms and all that. Nah, you live out here for long enough. Like, look at those clouds, man. Uh Uh-uh. I don't need any part of that. That was Ghostbusters you know? moment. Look at that. That's Ghostbusters. Like, where's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? That was yeah. that was amazing. That yeah, really was well, a great shot. You want to know something uh, they funny, Mike? The I've bowl. never seen Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, that, that's not funny. It's very predictable because any film that was either shot, produced, or released in the 1980s, you've never, ever seen. So that doesn't yeah, surprise me in the least. So, uh, yeah, you know, well... I, I'm not, I'm not going to defame your new hometown of Los Angeles by saying the thought that came into my head a little bit ago. I'm just going to move on. Okay. Enjoy Los Angeles. <laughs> I'll enjoy Cleveland slash Akron slash Canton. And uh, I'm heading back oh. to West Virginia not long after we are done today. And throughout the course of the day, by the way, not. this is PFT Live. I have a bad habit of not even mentioning the show. I assume if you're watching or listening, you <laughs> already know. But in the event you have somehow tripped over this accidentally and you're wondering what in the hell have I done to myself, this is PFT Live. We're on Peacock, Series XM85, Sky Sports in the UK and London, and wherever you can find your podcast. And I'd like to think if you're listening via podcast, you are aware of what the show is. It's kind of how the platforms work. You don't just browse 
podcast, or maybe you do, for all I know. But, Miles, welcome in. And let's talk about the return of football last night, sort of, the first preseason game. Only three weeks of preseason now with the extra Hall of Fame game. So that's 49, if my math is correct, and it rarely is, preseason games. So first one down, Raiders beat the Jaguars 27-11. to 11. They covered the over. I thought the over-under of 30-and-a-half was really low. I was surprised. I thought, like... <laughs> Vegas knows something we don't like. It's just going to be a few field goals. How do you even begin to set odds or over under for a preseason game, Miles? I have no idea, especially the Hall of Fame game. I mean, you're not really expecting guys to play, you know, that are notable in that game. I mean, that's not just from this year. You know, the thing that's in vogue now is to kind of not play any guys of consequence during the preseason. But I mean, I remember the Hall of Fame game in like 1999 when the Cleveland Browns came back into the league. And even then, they weren't playing anybody of consequence. And that's an expansion team. So I, I have no idea what in the world like you're looking at in order to try to set a betting number for anything in the preseason, let alone, you know, the Hall of Fame game. There's an 800 number that gets publicized all the time, and I mean this seriously. Obviously, we encourage responsible gambling, and if you do have a problem, you should take advantage of those services. I'd like to think that if you place any wager on any preseason game, it, like, immediately activates that 800 number. You go straight to it because I can't you – because it's just – you're just flipping a coin at best. But anyway – what? Yeah, well, that's that's part of it. You know, I mean, you could say the same thing about people. I know it's part of the fun. Online. It's part of the fun. Like, it's just, you know, part of the fun. As long as you're doing it responsibly, I don't see anything wrong with it. I really don't. But like, I, yeah, that, you know, that, it's there's there's a lot there probably if you are betting on the Hall of Fame game. It makes it more exciting. It really does. Yeah, exactly. And if exactly. I were a betting man. I would have bet the over last night, even though I would have been thinking they're trying to get me to bet the under, but the over hit at 38 points, 27 plus 11 is indeed 38. The game, by the way, if the over-under on rain delay was 30 minutes, the over hit as well, 40 minutes due to lightning in the area. And it was weird because I was watching the forecast for two days and it constantly changes. Is this this the life that you lived growing up in Cleveland? Like the forecast constantly changes and you never know what the weather is until the weather is? Yes, but is it not kind of like that in West Virginia? I mean, it's not like we're talking about two completely separate regions of the country. Although you don't usually leave your house, so that's probably why you don't check the weather very often. (laughs) First of all, yeah, it doesn't rain inside. And second of all, (laughs) I don't live next to a lake as big as an ocean, which would tend to influence the weather. And I've got mountains all over the place, too, which we've always believed. Like when I was a kid, let, let me... Let me go way back. One oh of the boy, TV stations that we got, one, one, of the, one of the three TV stations we got, and it was actually the other eight. Yeah. You know, it's been a while since we heard it. the piano. I thought the piano was retired. It, it took us like two weeks back from hiatus well, for the piano. You, know, you, got, you got all those books in the background. The piano feels right. But back in the days of three networks, we had an ABC affiliate from Pittsburgh but we had one from Youngstown. And there would be tornado watches and warnings in Youngstown all the time. And it would scare the crap out of me because I had no concept of where Youngstown was in relation to West Virginia. And, and just constantly tornado watch, tornado warning. And I allowed myself to think as a kid that somehow the mountains protect us and I still don't know why we don't. And I'm sure it is. The more the flatter it is, the more it can develop. But anyway, anyway, I used to get freaked out by the various tornado watches and warnings emanating from Youngstown back in the days when we had three networks and maybe four or five channels. All right, let's get to it. Uh, The Raiders. You covered the Raiders for the Las Vegas Review Journal before you stumbled into your current fate in between your work for the Panthers. what stood out for you watching this team that is now – and Simpson and I were talking about this yesterday. They're a playoff team from last year. They won 10 games. It's rare for a playoff team to have a regime change at the top, new GM, new head coach. What did you notice last night watching the Raiders play? Well, I mean, the, the one thing that really stands out is Josh Jacobs playing, right? And not just playing, but playing for multiple series. 
And whenever you're seeing a running back in the preseason and somebody who, you know, has been a pretty decent guy in that backfield before, I mean, I think this says a lot about what Josh McDaniels is going to do with the running back position. And if you've watched any Patriots football over the last, I don't know, let's call it 15 years, basically, since he was there, and obviously he went away and he came back. But that's not really a surprise based on what they've done with the running backs. And I remember, you know, people go on camp tours, of course, in this time of year. And Charles Robinson of Yahoo Sports went to Las Vegas, saw their camp. And then after that was basically like, look, if you've ever seen Josh McDaniels and what he's done with running backs, expect them to do the same thing in Las Vegas. So even though Josh Jacobs has been that bell cow back before, it's not necessarily going to be like that anymore. And I think that's a perfect example of exactly what he was talking about last night. We see Josh Jacobs out there for that long. Well, when the Raiders did not pick up the fifth-year option on Josh Jacobs' first-round rookie contract, and they had three first-round picks the year that Jacobs was a first-rounder, and none of their options got picked up for year five, that was the signal that it is going to be the same approach. It's a game plan-specific strategy at the running back position. And you never quite know who it's going to be until that game unfolds. This game, we need more of a blocking presence. This game, we need a between-the-tackles runner. This game, we're going to run more outside. This game, we're going to throw it to him more. And it it does depend on what they plan to do. And they're not going to just go Josh Jacobs, Josh Jacobs, Josh Jacobs. Here's Josh McDaniels last night after the game talking about his decision to use Josh Jacobs on a night when most of the starters were in uniform but not on the field. Was everybody ready to go, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we made the decisions we thought were the right decisions for our team and um, some based on depth, some based on just wanting to get guys opportunities to, you know, get in there. And I always think it's good for backs to carry the ball in the preseason, you know, and, you know, it, there's a lot of things that happen when you're getting tackled and hit that you can't simulate in practice. So um, I think all our guys had the ball tonight. All our, all our guys either caught it or, um, or, you know, were handed the ball and had to get, you know, tackled and, Um, You know, we can't really simulate that or rep that in practice. It's funny how in many contexts we see a kindler, gentler Josh McDaniels in comparison to his former boss, Bill Belichick. But, boy, there was some real Belichick vibe coming through, especially early on in that. The flat line, we just do what's Mm -hmm. best for the team, et cetera, et cetera. I I think this is the reality. I was looking at Josh Jacobs' contract. He's got $2.122 million in base salary this year fully guaranteed I think there's a little bit of showcasing of Josh Jacobs going on last night I think we're going to see more of it in the preseason I think if they get a trade offer for Josh Jacobs that they like they'll take it one -hmm. of the things about being on site for a game you pick up stuff that you don't pick up when you're in your house in West Virginia I think Josh Jacobs is kind of persona non grata with Josh McDaniels right now I think Jacobs, and you know, when you don't pick up the fifth year option, it goes one of two ways. Mm-hmm. It's either I got to buckle down, I got to bust my ass, I got to do what I need to do to earn a spot with this team beyond this year. Kind of like what Doug Martin did with the Buccaneers. Remember Muscle Hamster? Yes. He was a first round pick. They didn't pick up his fifth year option. And in his contract year, he was phenomenal, and they had to sign him to a long-term contract, and he got a lot of money from the Buccaneers before he became an unrestricted free agent. So not picking up the 50-year option really sparked him. Right. I think Josh Jacobs knows I'm not going to be here. I'm just not he, – he's going the other way. This isn't about I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to have a big contract year because I don't think anything he does because he's going to have limited opportunities, and they're never going to pay him because they're not going to pay a running back the kind of money that he thinks he's going to get. And he probably was led to believe just by circumstances his first three years in the NFL, at some point I'm going to get – decent money. I'm going to get a Joe Mixon contract. I'm going to get an Alvin Kamara contract. Not that he's never quite at that same level, but I, I, I think that, that I'm not saying he's checked out, but I have a feeling he's probably not bought in. And I think that Josh McDaniels would very much like to get an offer from someone to unload the $2.1 million and move on to the other running backs that they have. Oh, I, I, that's, I, I tweeted that last night, Mike. You know, if I am watching this and I'm a GM and I see Josh Jacobs is out there running the ball like this in the Hall of Fame game, 
Now, if I need a running back, I'm, I'm probably picking up the phone. And I'm calling Dave Ziegler right then and there and saying, hey, what do you want for him? Because if he's somebody that I think can put my ball club over the top, and this is a guy that is a tough, hard-nosed running back, right? And he was a candidate for offensive rookie of the year back in 2019 when it went to Kyler Murray and it should have gone to A.J. Brown. So this is somebody who really can run the football effectively. Now, has he done that over the last couple of years? Well, uh, you know, he's shown that potential that he still has, right? I mean, he has an ability to lower the shoulder and go into guys and bowl guys over. And he can make some special runs. And I think we sort of saw some of that ability last night, too. But at the same time, if you're Josh McDaniels and you have a philosophy for the running back and you know that Josh Jacobs, while he's good, he's not going to necessarily be that guy that you need every single week. It's not the same you know, philosophy as John Gruden had when he picked Josh Jacobs, where it's like, yeah, this is our bell cow guy. Then A, you're probably going to entertain the trade offers. And B, if you're Josh Jacobs, and literally everybody has been saying this, you know, it's not like it's really news if you've been paying attention to what's been going on in Las Vegas, that's why it's not necessarily that he's checked out, but he understands the circumstances. That's what I would say about it. That's right. That's right. But like I said, it can go one way or the other. You can say, I'm going to do everything I can to impress the new regime and I'm going to earn my spot. and I'm going to stick around. Or you can say, you know what? They don't want me. I don't want them. I hope I get out of here. I hope they trade. I mean, I kind of hope they do too, but he was running the ball hard last night. So, you know, it's not like, well, this is hey, this is this, because it's his opportunity to audition. I'm not talking about the stuff yeah. we see in a game. No, I'm know, talking about I the know, stuff I that know, happens behind I the know. scenes. Right. When everybody's no, watching, this is his chance to get someone's attention. And the reality right. is, if anyone's going to suffer an injury during camp and the preseason, it's running backs. It happens right. all the time. Somebody's going to tear an ACL. Somebody's going to break a bone. Somebody's going to be gone, and an opportunity is going to arise for Josh Jacobs. While the 49ers are waiting for lightning to strike at the quarterback position somewhere so they can trade Jimmy Garoppolo. Good luck with that. Much better luck if you're the Raiders and you're hoping for an opportunity to move Josh Jacobs. All I'm saying is this. At some point before week one, I think they make an effort to trade him. And if he's on the team, I think at some point before the trade deadline, there's a chance that the phone rings and Mm -hmm. Jacobs is gone. And then after the trade deadline, it could be like an OBJ situation where it's just we're going to part ways here. This just isn't working. I just... Again, being on site, you pick up stuff that you maybe wouldn't pick up if you were sitting in your mother's basement or above your garage or in your barn or wherever you may be other than at the scene of the game. Let's flip it over to the Jaguars. And before we talk about the Jaguars, let's hear from Doug Peterson, coach of the team, on the debut of number one overall pick, Trayvon Walker. Man, I, I thought I thought he did, did some really good things. There were some, some early good quick pass rushes in there he's very disruptive um you know showed his length his athleticism his power you know and and um he's you know he's gonna be fun to watch i think all season well we'll see what he can do all season he did get a sack last night he promised that there is Plenty more to come. He got called for roughing the passer on the first play of the game, so welcome to the NFL. I don't know if guys get – I think they do get fined in the preseason. There's a formula that it's lesser than it is usually in the regular season. But regardless, welcome to the NFL for Trayvon Walker. What stood out otherwise to you watching the Jaguars last night who didn't have Trevor Lawrence in uniform? No Travis ATN scaled down to a certain extent, but team that's trying to turn it around and move in the right direction, what did you see? Uh, well, I mean, th- I think when you look at it, it th- Trevor Walker is the one thing that immediately stands out because he's a number one overall pick, but he's a guy that's pretty, let's call it unheralded, you know, I mean, in comparison to the last few number one overall picks that we've had here in this league. And that's probably because he's not a quarterback, but also because he wasn't necessarily the highest profile guy when he was in college. But I think you saw some of those elements that the Jaguars really liked when he was coming out, you know, because he's able to get to the passer. He's got a couple of moves. Now, he wasn't going up against an all-pro. You know, it's not like he's going up against Trent Williams there, you know, but he is getting into the backfield. He's making moves. He's making his presence felt, and that's what you want to see out of a young pass rusher because there's not kind of else that much else to see, you know, when you're thinking about things like this. So can he go up against guys and win? 
He was able to do that last night, and that's at least encouraging if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars and you want to start turning things around this year. Challenging projection in the draft because he wasn't expected to rush the passer all the time at Georgia. Didn't have a lot of sacks. Leapfrogged Aiden Hutchinson. We spent so much time thinking it was going to be Hutchinson at number one. The Jaguars talked themselves into Walker. The Lions ran the card literally to the podium to the point where the NFL was upset. Like, slow down, please. We're trying to have a show here. We don't want these picks coming in too quickly. But the Lions had no doubts whatsoever about Aiden Hutchinson, and that's going to be an apples-to-apples comparison, how Hutchinson's career goes and how Walker's career goes. And we'll see. And there's a school of thought out there, too. One of the themes that came up in conversations this week, the idea that when you have that number one overall pick, and of course the Jaguars have had it for two straight years, but that's an opportunity slash obligation to get a guy who is going to fundamentally change your organization. Now they got it with Lawrence at quarterback, but I guess the argument could be made that when you get it the second straight year, if there isn't that guy out there that is just clear-cut, no-brainer, gotta have this guy, that's when you entertain trading out of the spot. The problem is there really wasn't that guy this year that everyone was clamoring for, that Stephen Ross would have wanted to tank for. There really wasn't anyone like that this year. (laughs) Man, Stephen Ross just comes in. Like, why am I in it? But yeah, Stephen Ross Riddick. Oh, if he has any doubt whatsoever, just he's just got to just Google your name, Stephen. (laughs) No, but you're right. I mean, and that's kind of the thing this year. There just wasn't that guy where you're like, oh man, I got to go up. I got to trade up. I got to do something. And usually that happens with quarterbacks, right? We saw it last year with Trey Lance and the San Francisco 49ers. They had to go up and get him and then give up everything that they gave up. And now they've got this situation with Jimmy Garoppolo where they have no idea where they're going to unload him to. So all these things are sort of circumstantial. And when you're the Jaguars and you have two first uh, overall picks in a row, I mean, it's interesting. The last time that happened was with the Cleveland Browns, right? They go with Miles Garrett first. They get the edge rusher first, and then they get Baker Mayfield. And, well, Baker Mayfield's no longer there a few years later. And then now we see Trevor Lawrence. Then the next year they go in and get the pass rusher. So, you know, if the, fir- if the quarterback works out better than it did for Cleveland, I think that's going to be a much better thing for the Jacksonville Jaguars and set them up on a good trajectory. But the pass rusher, you know, you never know what's going to happen with guys like that. They could come in and maybe they have one move and they do a really good job a little bit. And then the tackles start adjusting to him. And then it's like, uh oh, how do I counter this? I don't know. Or you can have that counter to the punch. And then you say, all right, well, this is going to be something that continues to carry me forward throughout the years of my career. So it's going to be interesting to see what the Jaguars can do. I could be wrong on this because I'm pretty much wrong on everything. But I don't think a team's ever had three straight years of number one overall pick. I don't think that's ever happened because I think that I would instantly know that. And that hopefully for the Jaguars, they will break that streak (laughs) this year. I think they will. I expect them to be be better than they were last year. Can't be much worse. But they're in a very difficult conference. The only thing that saves them is being in the same division as the Texans. And maybe they can pick off the – they've beaten the Colts two straight years at home in seasons okay. that resulted in earning the number one overall pick. So maybe, yeah. maybe they can win two or three games just in the division this year and, and lay the foundation for something more in the future. All right, here's how the week has gone from a news standpoint. Monday, Deshaun Watson Day. Tuesday, Stephen Ross Day. Wednesday – Deshaun Watson Day again. Thursday, football is back. Friday is going to be Deshaun Watson Day eventually because today's the day that the NFL Players Association will file its response to the NFL's appeal of the six-game suspension that was levied by independent disciplinary officer Judge Sue L. Robinson. And there's been a lot of confusion about the NFL's new procedure in part because it is new it used to be nfl is just judge jury and executioner and it runs the appeal and that's how it works we control everything in 2020 it changed so that in the middle of this process that's where there's someone who's independent then the nfl controls the appeal and there's a lot of consternation especially from the union well why don't they defer to what judge robinson did well because you agreed to a process that allows the nfl to appeal to the NFL. 
Yeah, you allowed that to stay in yeah, here. What did you exactly. expect them to do? Right. Th- that was my, my general observation, regardless of Deshaun Watson, regardless of what the league feels it has to do in this case to not be perceived as being lenient with someone who, according to Judge Robinson, committed four incidents of nonviolent sexual assault. Regardless of that, we're talking about a broader power struggle here between labor and management. And the NFL mm-hmm. is not in the habit of surrendering voluntarily the power that it possesses. It wields that power. It uses it. It's a reminder, we've got it, you don't. And if you want it, you have to come get it. So we'll see you at the bargaining table, maybe in a setting like this, in a library with a bunch of books that no one reads, and we'll bargain. And if you want us to change this procedure even further, what are you going to offer us for it? That's how it works. So I never thought I mean, when this all hit on Monday and it was like, oh, well, it's six game, oh, six game suspension and everyone's going to defer and everyone's going to accept because this is a former federal judge and the NFL is going to respect her decision. And the union tried to shame the NFL into doing it. The Browns tried to shame the NFL into doing it. We respect the decision of Judge Robinson. And the NFL was never going to accept it, never going to respect it. They'll respect and accept the findings of fact because those are the only things that matter on the appeal. That's all that's binding, and they got what they wanted. They got Mm -hmm. the roadmap to do whatever they want to do on appeal, but they don't have to accept or respect her six-game suspension, and they didn't. So, Miles, to get to the point, the commissioner exercising his prerogative to designate someone to handle the appeal. And Sims and I were talking about this yesterday. I kind of thought maybe Goodell would do it, but this gives him one step away from saying, hey, I didn't do it, So it's kind of independent because it's not me, but Peter Harvey, the former New Jersey attorney general, who instrumental in the creation of the current conduct policy, was one of the advisors on the Ezekiel Elliott case, has been right there in lockstep with the way that the league handles this. Do you really think he's going to do anything different than what Roger Goodell would do? Is there any reason to think he's going to part ways with Roger Goodell? He's gotten some plum assignments from the National Football League in the past several years. And we've talked about this this week, whether it's Sue Robinson, whether it's Peter Harvey, whether it's anyone else. You get that association with Big Shield, that helps the rest of your life and your career and your practice. You've got this affiliation with the NFL. You stand out among your other potential clients. He's not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize this gig that he has with the NFL. I hate to be cynical about it, but I don't think it's cynical. I think it's obvious. Well, I, I don't think it's cynical either. I, I think you're just explaining the situation as it is. I, I don't know why uh, Peter Harvey would do anything other than what the NFL would want. I mean, I, I think it's not too much of a stretch, and correct me if I'm wrong, to think that Peter Harvey might have been involved in the NFL trying to push for what they wanted initially, right? A year-long suspension, at least, with uh, uh, the possibility of reinstatement after that year. Is that off-base? No, it's not off-base. And I asked the NFL yesterday, was Peter Harvey involved in any of the preliminary steps, strategizing, planning, discussion, advising, consulting, et cetera? Try to ask it as broadly as I could so there'd be no way to, 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 you know, wiggle out from under the obvious question is he being asked to make the ultimate decision for the nfl on a case where his opinion is already baked into the league's position that the guy should be suspended for the entire year and sometimes what happens is you ask the question and they answer a different question so you have to ask the question again and that always that's always one of those things where you start thinking maybe i'm onto something but when i asked it again they said no he wasn't involved but how do i prove otherwise how do i prove otherwise i suspect it you suspect it Why wouldn't you at least run this idea by a guy who helped craft the current policy, especially, Miles, when the most important question of interpretation of this policy, as identified by Judge Robinson, what does sexual assault mean? What does it include? Is there a delineation between violent sexual assault and nonviolent sexual assault? Because she found that... When it's nonviolent, it's a different standard. It's a different punishment level. And that the most anyone had been suspended for nonviolent sexual assault was three games. And that's Jameis Winston for his assault of an Uber driver. That was characterized as nonviolent. I still don't know how she came up with six games. I read that opinion. I've read it again, and I've read it again. And there's no real explanation as to where six games comes from. Is it one and a half games per victim? I don't know. 
But that's going to be the key on this appeal. And if Peter Harvey, if his opinion, the guy who helped write the thing, if he says, you know, well, Judge Robinson wasn't involved in the discussions that led to the creation of this thing. It's kind of like looking at the legislative history before the passing of a statute. That's one of the things lawyers do to figure out what the statute really means. Well, the statute, I don't know, it's, cl- it's not clear. Let's look at what they talked about in Congress when they came up with the thing. Peter Harvey was Congress. He was the guy that was writing this thing for the NFL, so he knows how it's meant to be intended by the NFL. And given that the NFL has been pushing for a one-year suspension, I would tend to think that he agrees with the interpretation that sexual assault is sexual assault, it doesn't matter if it's nonviolent. We're not going to draw that line here. And there's been plenty of people arguing that this week, yes. that there shouldn't be a difference between violent and nonviolent sexual assault. So this all points to the NFL getting exactly what the NFL wants. And no one should be surprised when it happens. No one should be. Right. Pay attention, people. That's where this is going. And I knew that this is where it was going to go from the moment that the six-game suspension was announced four days ago. Let me ask you this, Mike. Do you think that this maybe increases the possibility of a settlement between Deshaun Watson's camp and the NFL? Well, that's a great question, Miles. But at this point, I don't know why the NFL would want to. Here's the only reason for the NFL to do it. To avoid whatever is coming on the back end of this. Litigation. I'm trying to figure out what the NFLPA is planning to do. And obviously, they're not going to put cards on the table ahead of time. I've heard they've got some aggressive plans. And my response was, well, I prefer successful to aggressive. <laughs> um, and I think they, they, they – I mean, I, yeah. I didn't mean to insult them by saying it. It's like, I don't know what you mean by aggressive. You better have something that works, right? right? You better have a plan that works. Their plan for Tom Brady worked until it didn't. Their plan for Ezekiel Elliott worked until it didn't. Both of those guys ultimately lost, and they created along the way – legal precedent that makes it very easy for the NFL to win here. And as I've said before, and let's understand how this works. The NFL, the moment Peter Harvey's decision is entered, if the NFL files a lawsuit after that gavel falls in the Southern District of New York federal court, a declaratory judgment action seeking a finding that this was a proper exercise of the NFL's power, they're going to win. They're going to win because it falls under the appeals court that ultimately found that the league was acting within its rights when it comes to Tom Brady. And the union's going to try to say, well, this is the first time we've done one of these where someone independent makes the initial decision and the league then handles the appeal. I look and I say, it doesn't matter because you've agreed to let him do it. What, right. what's, what's weird about a very straightforward application of the procedure that you agreed to? Right. Uh, that, that's what I would say, too. I mean, it, it's collectively bargained. So it's not like this should be a surprise when the NFL exercises the power that you guys as the NFLPA agreed to in the last collective bargaining agreement. So, I, I, I mean, they can have aggressive tactics. I, I would wonder if they would be successful. But, I, I mean, if I am a layperson and I am not a lawyer, as some of us uh, also are, are that are on the screen right here. But, you know, like I'm, if I'm looking at this just as a layperson, I'm like, well, you collectively bargained this and then this is the result. So what exactly are you challenging here? I mean, that is at least where my mind goes. And there's a certain level of naivete at work here on behalf of the union. My understanding is that the relationship between the league and the union was in a very good place. After the 2020 CBA, they worked together better than it's been in years. Cooperation, friendly, everything's great. And now it's going the other way. Now we've got a situation where the relationship is disintegrating and deteriorating because of this Watson case, and the NFLPA is flummoxed by all of this. Well, when you give someone the contractual right to do a certain thing, when you have voluntarily given them that right, why would you think they're not going to use that? Why would you think that because we're getting along now, in a spirit of collegiality and cooperation, we're just, you know what? Since you asked nicely, and since we're all making money here, and we're all getting along, yeah, you know, we could appeal the decision to ourselves, but you make a pretty good point. We should just respect the work of the Honorable Sue L. Robinson. Why would you think they're going to do that? Why would anyone think that the NFL is just going to say, yeah, you know, we have the ability to get what we wanted all along. 
just by pressing the appeal to the NFL button, but we just won't do it because we're in a good mood today. I, I'm stunned that anyone would even think that that's a possibility. And they've tried their best to take this new procedure and twist it into a PR assault aimed at getting the NFL to yield. But again, why would it? There's no reason to do it. And the message comes through loudly and clearly that the NFL is going to get what it wants. So I don't think a settlement is likely unless, you know, the one thing, Miles, that, that keeps coming back to me, because we know how the game works. The commissioner has five, six, seven owners who really run the league, and they're the ones he talks to more than any of the others, and he's going to seek their input. To the extent that a guy like Robert Kraft, who got dragged into the Sue Robinson stage of these proceedings, is concerned about getting dragged into a federal court action and having to read stories about how the union is comparing Deshaun Watson to him, and we're, we're reminded of, of the solicitation charges he faced in Florida a couple of years ago. Even though it's apples to oranges, he was never accused of any type of sexual assault, violent, nonviolent, any type, nothing. That wasn't the case with him. If he's got discomfort there, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the question is raised by him. Isn't there a way to work this out so we don't have to continue this? I mean, and that's the other thing the NFLPA is pushing. The old Paul mm-hmm. Tagliabue line, all's well that ends. Let's just get this over with. Hmm. Why are we prolonging this? Why are we undermining football season? Football's back. And hours before kickoff, we're dealing with the fact that Peter Harvey is going to handle the appeal. So they're trying their best. And maybe that's one thing that could stick. But I, I still, because it wasn't a big piece of the Judge Robinson decision, it was just a footnote about treatment of owners in comparison to players, I don't think that's enough to scare the NFL away from doing what it wants to do. That makes sense. But, I mean, it... it... I think what you're saying about it becoming a bigger issue could be a thing if there is some more litigation, right? I mean, you just mentioned that it was there in the footnote, and I don't even know that the footnote actually brought up Robert Kraft's name, but if you go a little bit further, yeah, yeah, I didn't think so. So if you go a little bit further with this, then perhaps Robert Kraft's name does get brought up, right? And it becomes more public and it becomes a bigger deal. So I, I kind of agree with your line of thought there that that's something that could perhaps induce the NFL into you know, making a, a more of a case for a settlement there. I think the other side of the coin too, the NFLPA may be treading a little lightly to not go too far after that angle because Robert Kraft is sufficiently powerful that to the extent they hope to have a good relationship with the NFL, that would make it very difficult if they would indeed target him specifically and point out that there was no discipline of him and they investigated, but they did nothing. How can you do nothing to him and try to suspend Deshaun Watson for a full season? Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tony Busby, who represented 30 individuals who had claims resolved against the Texans, 24 claims that we know of, 23, there's still one left, involving Deshaun Watson. He conducted a press conference yesterday. It was odd to me because earlier this week, he issued a statement saying, I have nothing to say about the NFL's process because that's irrelevant to me. Well, then the next day, he calls a press conference for Thursday where he's going to talk about the NFL's process. So let's hear a little bit from Tony Busby yesterday, and we will react to it, as they say, on the other side. It is a given that the NFL's disciplinary process is a juggled mess. It has been so inconsistent in the past that it's hard to take it seriously. And worse yet, everyone knows that the NFL's record on women's issues is sketchy and sad. At best, it could be described as inconsistently dismal. Nevertheless, our clients believed that with a new process in place, with new people involved, things might be different. Unfortunately, we were wrong. Some of the interviews spent most of the time on a deep dive of the victim and little to no questions about the conduct that was being alleged. In some cases, it was our view that when the questioners weren't being aggressive and hostile, 
they really weren't that interested in what was being said or what had actually happened. Many of our clients left those interviews thinking that they had not been heard. Kind of strange to see a guy who speaks extemporaneously all the time reading from notes, but that's a different point altogether. Tony Busby, I don't know what he's trying to do here because he raises concerns about the way the NFL handled the investigation, raises concerns about the manner in which his clients were questioned. They were being interrogated. They were asked, what were you wearing for these massage sessions? They, were, they felt like they weren't being properly respected. He said that 10 of his clients were interviewed by the NFL. He offered to make more available. The NFL didn't take him up on that. Now, I think there's – I'd like the NFL to go on the record with a response. I don't Me like too. trafficking in off-the-record responses to this kind of on-the-record allegation. I've seen some reporting, and I've heard some things – off the record, and again, it makes me uncomfortable to pass those along because they should just issue a statement. If they have a disagreement yeah. with Tony Busby, they should just say so. Yes. But he loses sight of the fact that the process gave the NFL the roadmap to get to where the NFL wants to be. Right. He, he acts like the NFL is trying to brush this under the rug and not punish Deshaun Watson. They want him out for the whole season. Yes. He may disagree about how they're going about it and how they went about interviewing these individuals and why they didn't call any of his clients to testify at the hearing. But the league has in hand findings of fact from Judge Robinson that he did it, that he committed nonviolent sexual assault. It's odd to see him complaining about a process that is on course to give him what he apparently wants. Right. Not, not only is the process on course to give him what he wants, it's also not over. You know, so I'm... I'm a little puzzled, I guess, by the reaction. And I, I, I feel terrible that any victim of sexual assault or someone that is claiming to have been sexually assaulted does not feel hurt. And I, I don't like hearing that. But at the same time, when I look at what the NFL has done in the process thus far, the NFL got to a place where it has concluded the independent, you know, arbitrator, if you will, from that is appointed by the NFLPA and the NFL concluded that Deshaun Watson was guilty, right? And so now the NFL has appealed the six-game suspension, and we could see the increase in the suspension. We could see an increase in fine, and we could see an increase in what he has to do to receive treatment. So the process is not over, but the NFL's finding of fact, as you said, Mike, has already concluded that he did what he was accused of. So I think to say that the NFL has not taken this seriously, I, I, I just I don't see that as what has gone on so far. And the obvious goal, I believe, is to put pressure on the NFL right. to follow through on what it seems to intend to do. But in so doing, it's contributing to this cloud of misinformation that is out there about what the process is, what it isn't, what has happened, what hasn't happened. Because anybody who would listen to that press conference yesterday, I would think he didn't get suspended at all. Right. Or I would think the NFL is just kind of checking boxes and getting through this because it wants to move on with football. The NFL is the one that is trying to rectify what it believes was a miscarriage of justice in the six-game suspension that was levied by Judge Robinson. So it just seems strange to me. And I would like to see why. And it was reported, I believe, at the time of the hearing. Why, when you have 10 people that spoke to NFL investigators, first of all, why didn't they talk to all of them? I'd love to know that on the record, not off-the-record chatter about whatever may have led to those yeah. interviews not happening. I want to know why, on the record, you didn't talk to all of the individuals who had claims against Deshaun Watson. And I want to know why you focused on four when it was time to actually present the evidence to Judge Robinson. And what was reported on time five, was and, the and, idea and, that— But the four was well, the fifth. Well, it was, was five, the but, the, but the— right. Yeah, right. Yes. The fifth was an anonymous person who spoke to Jenny Vrentis, who declined to be right. interviewed by the NFL. And Judge Robinson rightly said, that's not evidence. Yeah. But, but— as to the four, how did we get from 10 to four? Did the NFL just decide, as I think someone suggested at the time this was happening, to just focus on the strongest claims, the ones that had corroboration via contemporaneous text messages, etc.? But if there's 10 and you're just setting aside six, and if there's 
14 more, and you're not even counting them into that. I would like to think that the sheer volume of people who are complaining about what Deshaun Watson did would have relevance. If at the end of the day, now, and, and look at it this way, Judge Robinson found that the investigators who testified at the hearing were credible, and the 215-page report from the NFL was credible. Why do you only focus on four if you can say, look, there's 24? Wouldn't the punishment be a hell of a lot more? And that's the one fact that we all need to keep in mind, even though the case focused on four. Everybody knows it was 24. And why would anyone think that the evidence would be any different as to the other 20? I, you know, if some of them are telling the truth, are you saying that some of them are just making it up? If it's 24 and it's a consistent pattern and they all came forward and they all got settlements, that's one of those things that when Peter Harvey makes his decision or when a judge is weighing this, if it goes to court, that person's going to be aware that there were 24. That's unavoidable. Right. But it is odd to me, Miles, that the NFL just focused on four when there were so many others out there that would have made the case stronger just by the sheer volume of complaints against Deshaun Watson. Right. And I, I agree with you, Mike. And I feel like that's something that I would really like to know exactly why, how the NFL got to where it got with just focusing on four cases. I mean, we know why it went down from five to four at the hearing, but we don't know why it went down from, you know, 24 to 12 to 10 and then to five and then, you know, down to four as well. So there are, I think, a lot of questions that the NFL could answer by delving into exactly what its process was throughout the course of this. And I think for the sake of transparency and perhaps, you know, giving the public a greater understanding of what it was that the NFL was looking at, we all would benefit from the NFL sharing what that process was. You know, I mean, it's the same thing that we've been kind of trying to talk about with Daniel Snyder. How did you get to this conclusion, right? How did you get here where, you know, we're saying that this should be the punishment for Daniel Snyder? How did we get here so that this is where the NFL is saying, yes, we're pushing for a year-long suspension of uh, Deshaun Watson now. I, I feel like we would all benefit from that, a greater understanding of why and the how, you know, and we don't really have those things yet. And, and I really do think that the explanation would be, if they would give us one, that they just wanted to focus on the strongest cases that they had, and they didn't want to dilute the credibility of the four by introducing more than that. But if... I guess if I was Judge Robinson and the investigators are the ones who testify and not the individuals, and Busby said his people weren't even invited to participate, and I presume that they would have accepted the invitation if they would have been so invited, I would want to ask that question of the investigators before I decide how credible their explanation is. Like, why didn't you bring in these other six? Did you have concerns about their credibility? Did you you think that they were maybe – exaggerating, embellishing, fabricating, would that affect your view of these other four individuals? I mean, is it just because they happened to send a text message after they walked out of the room? Is that the thing that made these believable when these aren't? I I would be curious about all of those things if I was Judge Robinson or anyone else, and I don't know, maybe we'll try to get to the bottom of that. One thing that I reported last night, the Browns plan to play Deshaun Watson in the preseason. They begin next Friday at Jacksonville, then the final two preseason games against the Eagles and the Bears are at home. I don't know whether he plays in all three. I don't know how extensively he plays, but the plan is to play him. And the only thing that could derail that, Miles, is if Peter Harvey gives the NFL that one year, you're gone, you're out, and it starts now. That's a possible outcome to the appeal hearing to be conducted by Peter Harvey or hearing. There may not even be a hearing. I think the NFLPA is going to ask for a hearing. The rules don't contemplate one. But whenever this ends... The final result could be he goes now and he doesn't come back until at least 365 days from now. Yeah, well, I mean, from the Browns standpoint, I can understand why they would want to get him on the field. He hasn't played since the end of the 2020 season. So that's January 2021. So, I mean, you know, irrespective of anything else, like if you're the Browns and you think that there is some possibility he could play this year, even if you don't and you just want to see him out there on the field, you know, operating the offense, I get why they would want to play him. But still, Mike, I mean, my God, like this is 
it's a it, it's an odd situation where you have a player who a has in his ostensibly in his prime who hasn't played for this long but to get to where we've gotten you know through the processes that we've had where it was first Deshaun Watson requests a trade and then there is the litany of accusations that come against him and lawsuits that come against him and then he gets traded and now we're in this sort of state of limbo between knowing that there is a six-game suspension on the table that is you know subject to appeal and it it's been a real wild year almost year and a half in the life you know of Deshaun Watson and consider this angle as well this is the year with the 17 game season the AFC teams play nine on the road and eight at home in the regular season barring the mm-hmm. the international games but for the AFC teams you got two home preseason games you got two occasions where you need people to show up and buy stuff and spend money and this is a subtle way for the Browns to market their preseason games because this is your only chance to see Deshaun Watson. This is yeah. it for six weeks, 12 weeks, full season. You want to see Deshaun Watson? You want to come out and cheer on the new Browns quarterback? This is your opportunity to see him, which may be all the more reason for the final decision to be, Deshaun, you're gone right now. You don't get to finish the preseason you don't get to finish camp you're gone I mean I'm sure that there are folks at 345 Park Avenue that are very uncomfortable by all these pictures we're seeing of the fans mobbing Deshaun Watson at the time when the NFL was trying to suspend him for a year it's business as usual at Brown's training camp there has to be people at 345 Park Avenue who see that and just they don't feel right about that you can't reconcile these two images yeah of course you can't reconcile those two images I mean look at him he is signing autographs right there for all those fans and you know he's been giving away shoes and stuff like that you see the kind of stuff out of brown's camp every single day so i I totally agree with you if i'm at 345 park avenue and i've been pushing for him to be suspended for a year this this image at best makes you cringe and, and by the way, from the you-can't-make-this-up file, the American Massage Therapy Association is holding oh, its that. national convention in Cleveland, August 25 to 27, yeah. and on the 26th is a Browns preseason home game in Cleveland. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we return, you know, I've had spider sense about Matthew Stafford's elbow for weeks. You have. And I've had a feeling it's going to be a problem. And it is a problem. And there's even more. It seems like every day there's more. There was a lot more that came out yesterday. We'll talk about what's really going on with Matthew Stafford's elbow when PFT Live continues right after this. Throughout the course of the week, concerns have grown regarding the elbow of Matthew Stafford, the Rams quarterback. The latest report from NFL media is he's dealing with, quote, bad tendinitis, end quote. Here's, quote, head coach Sean McVay, end quote, from Thursday talking about his quarterback and his elbow. I think the biggest thing is, is he's feedback on how it feels, you know, because it is a, a tricky deal and you want to make sure that you're getting with the right people that are experts in this field. It's a little bit abnormal for a quarterback. You know, some of this stuff is, is things that, you know, MLB pitchers deal with. And so it is something that, you know, we're kind of learning about on the fly and, and his feedback and really trying to just figure out, okay, how do we get the best plan in place to try to minimize some of the things that he was having to push through, also giving him the confidence that, hey, I can really just, you know, let it go, not have to worry about it, play to the best of my ability. Now, like I had mentioned, you know, I don't know when you've gotten as much experience as Matthew has, uh, and he would be way better equipped to talk about it than I would, Jordan, in terms of, all right, do you ever really feel totally great after you've played this much football? But the goal is to try to get him to feel as, as good as possible, and especially when you're talking about something with that throwing elbow. There were some things that he pushed through last year. We tried some things in the off season, you know, however you want to look at, you know, some of the different treatments um, that we had that we had tried, and, and I don't know that it got different results than what we had hoped, but I think we were hoping that you know some of the pain would have been alleviated, and that's that's really the goal. And so, um, being able to pivot and adjust is kind of what you're seeing. But this isn't something that we're totally off you know caught off guard with. I think going into camp, we knew that we wanted to have a modified approach and a progressive build. You know, but then when you could just really see, I know how tough he is, and when he's really pushing through. Um, could he do it? Yes. Is that the best thing? We didn't think so. 
I, I love Sean McVay, great head coach. He's been to two Super Bowls and he's won one. But he is the ultimate glass half full. He is not going to come out there and be completely candid and honest with his concerns. And he surely is concerned about a quarterback with a baseball injury, with an elbow injury that hasn't gotten any better. They shut him down from throwing for all of the offseason program. He reportedly had the platelet-rich plasma treatment in order to make this better, and it hasn't worked. Whatever they did in the offseason to get him ready to go did not work. So when he's out there throwing the ball and he uses all those different arm angles, which puts all sorts of different stress on that elbow, and as Chris Sims says, there may be some other issue that's going on that's causing the elbow pain. This is a complicated thing. And when you hear from McVeigh, I mean, let's put it bluntly, they don't know what the hell they're dealing with. When you're talking about a world-class football operation that has been thrown, no pun intended, a curveball with this baseball injury that Matthew Stafford has, and they don't seem to know what they're going to do. This is alarming, and it's become gradually more alarming as the week's gone on. It's been hovering for weeks, and I, I, I don't know where this goes from here. And I assume at some point they're just going to say, the hell with it, let's go forward, and Matthew Stafford's going to try to push through it. And we may have a moment like we had week two of the 2019 season where Ben Roethlisberger throws a deep pass and he grabs his elbow and he's gone for the year. It it could happen in that way. Um, But yeah, I I think you're right that it's very concerning whenever you're talking about a quarterback and a starting quarterback and a quarterback that won the Super Bowl last year and the Rams still have very high aspirations. And, you know, I think, Unless you have Nick Foles on your team, right, and you're the 2017 Eagles, usually when you lose your starting quarterback, you're effed, right? And, like, they've got John Walford, right? That, that's not necessarily going to strike fear in the hearts and minds of, you know, defensive coordinators throughout the NFC. And I mean that with all due respect to, to Walford. But, you know, it seems they did, like they did they, once bench Jared Goff for John Walford. They did okay. once bench the great and powerful Jared Goff for John Walford. So that oh, Jared Goff that is, is a feather now. in Walford's cap. Yeah, I guess I it is. But and I'm Walford just saying, before that, he left, before he I left, know. he was healthy. He was healthy, and they went with Walford. Nah. Yeah, well, I know, but that's not the the case there that he's there anymore, right? And then Jared Goff was the quarterback I right understand. now, and then like a week and a half later, he was gone. So you know what I'm saying? But like. I think right now it seems like they want to just kind of trend Matthew Stafford in the right direction. Obviously, Sean McVay has said that. But now Stafford was throwing this week, right? Yesterday he was participating in individual drills, seven-on-seven drills. The Rams' Twitter made a big deal out of him throwing something like a 50-yard touchdown pass to Tutu Atwell in seven-on-seven. So he's still throwing. He's just not doing all of the things that a starting quarterback would be doing in training camp. And when you're integrating a new receiver, somebody like Allen Robinson, who we know is a really good, good receiver, and just hasn't had the quarterback play, right? You need this time to build that chemistry. You want that chemistry to start happening in those 11-on-11 settings. And when that can't happen, that could mean that it could take some time once Matthew Stafford starts playing, you know, in earnest in the regular season for that chemistry to really develop. And this is something that Chris Sims explained earlier in the week, and I think it's right on the money. The reason why Stafford's not in the team settings 11-on-11 is when you get in that mindset, there's a level of competition that can take over, and you try a little bit harder to put a little bit more on the ball to fit it through the window that's there, and you push it more than you should when it's full-blown 11-on-11. When it's 7-on-7, it's a little more casual. Yeah, I can throw the 50-yard pass, but I'm not exerting the way that I ordinarily would. There's not the same urgency to get the ball there because it's not a, a more simulated game setting, which is fine. He can throw under those circumstances, but when he ramps it up to full speed, this guy's open, and I know the window's that big, and I only have so much time to get it to him, and I'm going to whip the ball out, that's when it's putting something extra on there that's causing that that elbow tendonitis so anybody that's ever thrown a baseball more than they should at any one time knows that feeling I I remember that feeling I'm left-handed and I remember that feeling of throwing baseball all day long and you're walking home and your your arm is just hanging and that elbow is throbbing and and again they haven't gotten past it for Matthew Stafford it's fairly important part of the body for a quarterback who's got 
his first game of the regular season in four weeks and six days, Miles. Well, the other thing that happens when you're in 11 on 11, I mean, you get defensive linemen all around you, right? I mean, you have to deal with the pass rush. And when you're talking about the Rams, that means number 99, Aaron Donald, who sometimes they pull back from those team settings specifically because he can blow up a play at any freaking time, which we obviously know because we have seen him do that countless times in games. But that's something that I know the Rams did in practice because I watched them do it for years and years and years. So when you have those defensive linemen up front and you have to contend with the pass rush, it's not just that, you know, you're trying to put a little more mustard on it. It can also be that guys get back there and maybe they hit you where they shouldn't hit you. Right. You know, Josh Allen was kind of dealing with that last weekend and he got a little bit, uh, a little testy, a little chippy over that. And when you're trying to protect your QB in these settings, because he's got an elbow issue, you just don't want anything to possibly happen to him. So I, I get why the Rams are taking the approach they're taking. We will continue to monitor the situation very carefully. We monitor all of the stories of interest in the National Football League. When we return, though, the newest arrival of the NBC Sports family joins me here. Fantasy Football Hall of Famer, the GOAT for fantasy football, Matthew Berry. Miles, go back to bed. We'll talk to you when you wake up at a normal human hour. Thanks, as always. For thanks or get to work, whatever you want to do. It's up to yeah. you. If you choose to go back to bed, I won't complain because I won't notice because I got another hour of the show to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you as always, and we'll be back with Matthew Barry here on Pro Football Talk Live right after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 